0: Do the right thing by the horse.
1: No ribbon,
0: no ribbon is worth, well, maybe there is a ribbon worth it, but I don't, I haven't found one yet. No ribbon is worth your horse. I mean, there's just not the end of the day. The things that keep me up at night are several, but, but if a horse is compromised and I, and it, and it was, I mean, it happens we're in competition. We're in, we're in horses, horses get hurt. They're all going to die before we do that sort of thing. They're going to go lame and, but if you can if you fill your knowledge and and know enough to avoid those things then you have to commit yourself to it and and I think knowledge is the key to all of it and it's not utilized enough in our in our sport I think people are so fascinated by the ribbon that they think that that means something well I mean I got lots of ribbons that don't do much for me. But I'll tell you what, that horse, when I go out there and I get on it to ride it at home or at a show and it gives me its heart, I mean, that's what, it's just so worth it then.
2: Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Julia Murphy and this week's episode is with trainer, clinician, and international five-star eventer Kyle Carter. Carter grew up on a farm outside of Calgary, Alberta in Canada where his lifelong dedication and love of horses began. Originally focused on jumpers, Carter saw success in his young years under the tutelage of Albert Cly. Later in life, Carter made the move to eventing and worked his way to become a World Equestrian Games silver medalist, an Olympian, and a Pan American Games athlete. Present day, Carter continues to focus on competing at the highest levels of eventing while he and his wife, Jennifer, own and run Five Ring Stable, a successful five-star eventing barn in Citra, Florida. Before we dive into the podcast with Kyle, I'd like to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, Purina, and share their message. Your horse has unique feed needs and Purina has you covered. From breeding and growing to senior horses, from performance horses to easy keepers, and everything in between, Purina has an extensive portfolio of research-backed options for your horse. There's no shortcut for quality nutrition. Cheaper isn't cheaper if it doesn't work. Put their research to the test. Find optimal nutrition at any level at your local Purina retailer or visit purinamills.com to learn more. Now enjoy the episode with Kyle. Okay,
1: so just to get started here, thanks again for hopping on to chat with me and to get to know you a little better. Just very simple question: How did you get interested in horses and riding to begin with?
0: Uh, I grew up on a farm with my parents uh, out in um, outside of Calgary. We had like 450 acres. They had cattle. Uh, they bred some racehorses. My dad was a vet, um, and they were just sort of into it. But the what got what sort of pulled me into it was my brother loved horses and whenever they'd lead the brood mares across the across the farm in front of the house and stuff he would you know make them put him up on them and then he would eat in the eat out of the feed bins with them and stuff like he was sort of obsessed with it and (laughs) it was was sort of inevitable that we were both gonna ride because my parents Mm. were into it so we had you know like a pony right off the bat. I, I, I'm younger than my brother, so I was on the pony that he had originally. And, um, you know, just it was pretty, it was a pretty ideal existence because we basically were kicked out of the house every morning um, and went and did any number of things on this farm, which involved i mean you name it i mean my brother burned down a haystack he uh we would go end up at our neighbor's (laughs) place and with our horses and forget them there and things like troublemakers yeah we lived in a real (laughs) in a full country and we would just Mm -hmm. travel the horses were what we used for transportation and like for as kids until we were old enough to get motorbikes so um, right so we just it was always there my we had a hunt at our farm every year and it was really cool calgary still has this every fall every weekend they have a hunt um there's no hounds they just go to cross-country sites and i I think they still do the full cross country stuff and you just go Mm -hmm. and there's one guy who sort of knows where they're going and you follow him around in a giant group at different speeds and i mean you jump everything up to intermediate fences is how we did it it was awesome it was just like it was so much fun
1: yeah I've done uh, actually a couple hunts myself again, not what not with hounds, but you just go out with that big group of people and you'd gallop across the fields and do jumps and stuff. it's a to- it's such a great experience.
0: yeah, and then it was great for like for the kids. it was great because we all my friends, not all of them, but a lot of them rode, and so we just would all end up somewhere on Sunday. We'd all do that, then we would all play and hang out, and my parents would hang out with all the all the adults and then my parents don't my parents don't drink but most of the people did and what they would do yeah. is they would, they would take a a truck with um, the bar cart and they'd locate you know they'd go to four or five places around this they'd be, they'd be out for 2 hours but you'd end up at this place where they'd have food and drink and then uh-huh. you go on to the next one and it it sounds very posh but it was totally like it was about as redneck as you could get in <laughs> Alberta
1: That sounds so fun It was and uh, when did you start getting more serious about your riding? And, and, like, maybe when you started competing and such?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I probably started competing when I was, like, I mean, I don't know, we went to Gymkhana's and all sorts of things. And, again, it wasn't like Kyle was begging to go to these things. My brother had wanted to ride, and so my parents um, just kind of, you know, organized that we went to these – Pony club, gymkhanas, um, local jumper shows, you know, complete, just really low key, not the, you know, not the real high end stuff. Um, and it was, yeah. it was, it was again, it was great because you're making your mistakes, you're just having fun and really getting natural feel with it all. Um, and I probably started, well, honestly, when I was probably like five to nine, I was out competing and my aunt evented as well. Um, and so okay. when I, like, I know when I was nine, I, I was doing I had a really, like a really great jumping um, horse and I was doing training level with them at nine years old. And I only know that because I won a cup at, you know, the, the Western Canadian Championships or something. And so it's like every now and then I see the cup and I, like it's just a mug. And I'm like, I can't believe I was going like I, it's sort of hard to it's hard to kind of think of it nowadays that way that you would be doing that. But, you know, if you were on the right horse, you just kind of figured it out. So
2: um, and
0: then but obviously that wasn't terribly serious. We were doing lots of different things. And then we started my brother and I started doing triathlon and modern pentathlon. And um, alongside that, we kept riding. And um, the riding just for me, it just was I really enjoyed it. So I started. The further I went, the more I did. Um, the higher, the higher level stuff that I ended up kind of doing. It was mostly because my dad saw the trajectory, and so he would just organize it. So he would, you know, it'd be like I, you know, I said I wanted to go to Young Riders, so he just looked at what needed to happen to do that. He, um, he actually ended up we ended up organizing a, an event at the intermediate level to get qualified. I mean, it was it, It's all due to my father's ability to not wait for me to figure it out because if he'd if we were we'd still be waiting for anything to happen i enjoyed <laughs> immensely what i was doing in riding the horses but he sort of was far more um better at picking a path you know and saying well if that's your goal right. what are we doing so what really changed it was um for me was i went and i started riding with a lady named Claudia Kojakar who's still out coaching but now um she and jumpers were very big in the area it's in calgary alberta we were right down the road from spruce meadows and um the best trainers were jumpers so started working with claudia she has coached a couple people to the pan am games and show jumping and i rode with her for about th- probably three or four years and then um transitioned into i mean it's hard for her she ran a very high-end show barn and i was like barnyard scruffy you know i had brown boots i wore rubber boots i I mean i was just like (laughs) and i didn't care because i really wasn't aware of it i'm far more self-conscious now than i was back then with that stuff but i was just you know i just wanted to get on the horses and then um i spent a couple of months riding at spruce meadows with albert Cly, who was their riding master and at that point decided that that's I wanted to ride there with him because he just like when he when he talked to me he just made sense. It was one of those things and it was actually a really big epiphany yeah. for me in my coaching where you start to understand that you're actually your job is to is to identify how the person learns and work on that, but at the same time not every coach is for everyone and so you kind of need to migrate to where the best situation is for you to achieve your goals, and it was for me. Albert taught me horsemanship. He taught me a German. He was a German rider, and he taught me so much on the flat and understanding the prioritizing the horse's um, well-being over everything else. So it was just—I mean, it was without without making me aware of it. He just did it. It was it was great. So with that, I started to get way more competitive in the jumpers um and I had a couple of horses that were not jumping as well as they could because that's a pretty big environment there at Spruce Meadows Oh and,
1: yeah yeah.
0: Yeah and four faults isn't going to get you you know. <laughs> no. it's not going to get you anything. Yeah. So the horses that were not quite up to the show jumping although they were good jumpers like they could jump big fences um I we I just started to event them because I'd done that and so I started to I took the The first one I'd already evented when I was younger, but I had gotten away from it, and I started to. um, I just took the jumpers that weren't working terribly well on the jumper ring and started uh, eventing them. And then on the Mm -hmm. weekends, I would do jumpers. I would do jumpers all week, and then I would go to an event on the weekend with the other horses. And you know, I was really fortunate. I ended up. I probably had like twenty some horses through my life before I was eighteen years old. Wow. Because. My dad also was a master of picking up other people's um, discards and difficult things and bringing them home because he'd see some, you know, like some glimmer in them, and he would just assume that the job was as that we not job, but he was like, you know, well, figure it out, you know, it's just it's got it's got potential, work on it, and I have to say it was like it really served me well because in my barn now, and it's been this way from day one there's not a single horse and there's no stamp you walk in there and it's like well that's one type and there's a totally different type and their temperaments are completely different and all of that and so I've been really lucky to you know have a huge variety of options when I ride horses and that's due to that initial part with him that really started me down the idea of how much fun this I mean it's like it's sort of stupid, but it's like all I want to do is just—I no. just wanted to have fun riding horses. I still am yeah. a little bit that way, but there's a lot more responsibilities now. Yeah. Um, but it was—I always had a lot of horses to ride, and I was just happy to like if someone shoved something underneath me, I was like, "This is awesome! I get to ride this one too!" And you yeah. know, it, it was great. And then, what really transitioned me into more of a professional end was at the end of my high school years and my junior jumper years. Um, I'd done some really big classes that last year as a, as a jumper. Um, But I recognized that I didn't, by that point, we'd gone through a major financial reshuffle in my family and we'd, um, my dad had gone bankrupt. And so I was very much shoestring budget and making do with other people's discards. Um, but mm-hmm. I had a really good mare in the in my barn that other people had had. And she was, no one on the circuit is Scary Mary because she would bounce one strides and do ones and twos. Oh,
1: gosh. <laughs> yeah,
0: and, and I'm not talking like at the local show. We're, they're doing it at Spruce Meadows. And this thing would fly around. They ran her in something called the Nerve Line, which is a particularly uncomfortable looking device that actually twitches them while you're riding them. Oh, gosh. Um, I never heard of that before. Uh, it I mean it was really like and it, it was the worst part was she was a thoroughbred that that come off the track someone had mm. they bred her and she was jumping out of round pens that were like six feet high and so they were yeah. like well this might make a jumper and they sent it to someone and they did no training with it they just took it and jumped it and so when it came to me she was already like well <laughs> she was pretty notorious and she was I think 14 or 15 at that time Um but my trainer, again, Albert, he just opened, he was like, nope. The, yeah, every day we did an hour of dressage before we were able to jump. And he really, like, made me put basics on her. And she just yeah. became a complete reformed character. And because of that, I was able to, um, you know, jump at a really high level. The last year of the Masters, I qualified for what was the Du net then, and now it's the CN International. Um So like it was a million dollar class. I didn't go into it because he was, my coach was like, you know, you're qualified. She can jump that height, but you're not going to be, you're not good enough to run around a whole course of that. And he wasn't, he was completely Mm. right. Um, But I remember that, like just being able to get to that point after starting with her in in the beginning of the year, because I only had her that year, Mm -hmm. um, it was a pretty big, shift for me and it made me aware how much I wanted to do this but also made me aware of one key thing and that was that um, without the backing the show jumping was not a route that I was going to be successful at because if I had a good one I was going to have to sell it and you can't uh, like understanding you can't make a show jumper it's got to be careful enough you can Mm -hmm. make them better You can help them jump bigger but you can't make them jump a big fence if they don't have that in them and so that immediately restricts them where certainly at that point you could make an event horse and i'd made a few of them up to intermediate and i was like well this is obviously my option is to do the best thing for my career would be to follow the eventing path because i had a couple offers for some jumper barns to work in and stuff um but they, one was in New Zealand and one was in California. And then, a, uh, not a job offer, a working student position opened up in yeah. England. And I was like, you know, I'm going to learn more about eventing in England than I'm going to learn about show jumping in New Zealand or California. Right. show jumping in California. Um, and so I moved over there for a year. And that, again, it was my dad. He was like, I I remember him coming home. I remember so vividly I was working at the, on maintenance at Spruce Meadows because I was that good of rider that they were willing to make me a um make me a maintenance worker um (laughs) and he came home and he was like you know what do you you want to ride horses here's this you know these are the options and there were three jobs laid out the one was the working student in england i was like yeah i think that's probably the smartest move it's sort of amazing i made a smart move actually at that point because i'm clueless or and certainly then i was really clueless (laughs) and um he came home literally the next day with a plane ticket. And I loaded up my I had I'd had three horses going at that point. Um one had been one I rode for some people, very wealthy people. And it was my first experience in the professional end of it, where I came in, I'd taken this horse that had been difficult, turned him around and made him into a really nice animal. And I walked in the barn one day and someone else was riding him, trying him. And they were like, Yeah, well, they said they were gonna keep him for me, and they're like, Well. We weren't really going to keep him, and they sold him. Mm. And um, then my other, my intermediate horse that I was getting ready to go advanced on had had an injury that just kind of was starting to flare up, and I didn't want to push on him and have him get hurt, so I set him aside. Um, and the other one was just a thoroughbred that was going prelim that wasn't quite ready to go on and shine. I needed that opportunity to leave, so I didn't take a horse with me. I just went over, and I worked – uh, in England, you know, in their barn, rode their horses, mucked their stalls, cleaned the cobblestones, you know, you name mm-hmm. it did all of it. Yeah. Um, but I can't tell you, I, I, there is nothing that would have made me a better professional than that because I learned yeah. the whole like I can do ev- I can do anything on a farm. there's no I can't I'm, the question would be whether he braids well enough to actually have anybody want to look at it not vomit but <laughs> everything else I can put my hand to and 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 do and you don't get that just t- getting a lesson so I was really fortunate and yeah. that I was able to go and do that and be a working student and my dad was and my parents were willing to sort of be like well all right off you go out of the house and you know halfway across the world and no like as though as though it was no big deal you know
1: yeah That's amazing how supportive your parents and your father were. And um, that actually kind of leads into my next question about who some of your mentors have been um, over the years and who's influenced your writing. And, you know, you spoke about your coach, too. So um, if you want to speak about either of them some more or if you have some other people that you'd like to mention, just people who have really uh, had a big hand in your career over the years
0: yeah well so it's interesting because i think i follow i've certainly followed a different path than what we do with our students now um but like in the early stages the first person that spoke to me where i was like where the wiring started to actually get put into my brain and i understood what the heck was going on up until then i'd been you know a bit seat on the seat of the pants and then when i'd go into a formal lesson they would start talking and I would just be like, I have no idea what's going on here. Because it was because everything had been sort of natural and they weren't explaining it of this is why you're doing it. It was explained of, you know, the process as they were climbing up. And it wasn't like it wasn't like it, it was OK. It worked all right. But it didn't make me understand it the way that Albert did. Albert Cly absolutely changed because and I was fortunate because he was such a horseman. So when it changed my perspective to horsemanship, it made me a hundred times better than I'd been before. Maybe not more competitive, but more, uh, more where I was going to be successful long term. And I, right. I never. I mean, I, I don't think he ever knew how much that meant to me because. You know, look, it wasn't back when people post on Facebook and all that. And I'm not like going to go chase people down. Be like, oh, my God, you're the best. I love you. You're wonderful. But he absolutely changed my life. And um, he died a few years ago. And I remember when he died, I was like, you know, I'd seen him and I talked to him. stuff, But I never, I don't think, expressed to him enough how much he influenced me. And not, again, like being my cheerleader, just being... Pragmatic, telling me the stuff that was important. He was, you know, he was hard when he needed to be, you know, hard. He was, he was kind when he needed to be kind. He was, I mean, I wouldn't say he was ever fluffy, but he was funny sometimes and things. But he absolutely changed the direction of my riding because of what he made, what was important to him. And I will say, if I had ridden with a different coach who was more of a, um dismissive of the horsemanship and stuff I probably would have thought that was okay too because you kind of that's what would have influenced me um but I always did love the horses and I loved that, that ha- that's how that came to me so he certainly was the formative that first person that kind of made me open my eyes to what I wanted out of it you know like even to the point when he told me not to like it was a 100 dollar nomination fee to do that that um the Demorier and you got like a thousand dollars to finish. And my brother was like, I've got a hundred bucks. I will pay that. You go in there. He wasn't riding at the t- He'd quit riding at that point, but he was like, let's get a thousand dollars. Cause that was a lot of money to us. Like it was not, Oh yeah. yeah, I was working for $10 an hour cleaning out goat barns and, and stables in the area and stuff like on a weekend, I would go and drive down the road. Not cause I'm saying, Oh, cause I, but cause I wanted the cash. I needed the money. Um, but, so I didn't, but, but when he said, you know, when he said, you know, you can go and I'll walk then we'll do everything we can, but I, it's the, it's not the right thing. Like I really respect him enough to be, and I wanted to do it, but you know what? He was right. I would have been in there over my head. And mm-hmm. I see that a lot in, in coaching. And I see that a lot in, um, in riding where people aren't aware of it because everything's gone well. So they just assume it's going to continue to go well. And, he,
1: yeah.
0: you know, but I respect him enough, not even to just like, I walked the course and I was like, you know what? He's right. This is not, I think I got, yeah. five in. I was like, he's right. But I wouldn't. It's good to that.
1: have a, a coach that manages expectations.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. and you think about it and like, it's such a, it like coaching is such a huge part of my life now. Mm-hmm. That I, I see it all the time. Like, I, you can predict how, the, how students are going to fail by who the coaches are working with. I mean, when the best thing your coach can do for you is make you feel good when things are going wrong, that's their biggest claim to fame, then they're not doing their job, in my opinion. I mean, if that's mm-hmm. what you need, then great. But you don't get success out of that. So, right. um, so that was the first one. And then when I went to England, I worked for um, Leslie Law. And at the time, Leslie's not that much older than me. I think he was 24 at the time, and I was 18. I'd mm-hmm. obviously done, I'd been the Young Riders at that point. Um, I'd So I'd done three stars. I'd done like three or four three stars, actually. Um, and I went into that barn. And so his knowledge wouldn't have been, you know, the greatest at that point, because he was only 24. But I will tell you what, I worked with him and his brother. I worked for them. And I got, I didn't get a lesson after the first six weeks I was there. That was it. That was the last lesson I got was six weeks in, but they would let me ride because I was somewhat competent. I'd get to ride like four or five horses in mm-hmm. the ring and they would, we'd ride around and they'd be like, well, Hey, why don't you try this? Or have you thought maybe do this? Like, it was really a great experience for me because it was like a, it wasn't the formal lesson situation, which I think so much more was learned by me for that. Right. Um, and then the biggest part was they were so they had that drive, enthusiasm, work ethic, um, like like I can tell you, from day one, you just knew that there was going to be success for them because they were good riders, But more than that, they wanted it. And so being around that made me more aware of, you know, how you how you proceed down the road if you're going to be successful. So, that year was hugely instrumental in in my in my informing the next part of it. One of it being is it was a sales barn um, that w- that we were working in, and by working in that sales barn, it allowed me to actually when I came back to Canada to become a professional making money because. I brought on Mm -hmm. horses and sold them and I knew exactly what I was looking for. I knew how to produce them, had a better idea what I was, how, how to train and stuff. Um, but as someone, so I started my business with $10,000. That was what I got from selling the horses when I, the horses I had, um, I started my business with $10,000 and was able to build to what we have here. And the career I got because of the year working for them, learning Mm. the actual ropes. But then when I came back and I was working over here, I didn't have very much money. So all the stuff I did was producing and riding and buying and selling, breaking people's horses, teaching lessons and everything to try to earn an income. But I couldn't really afford a lot of mentorship. And I will say, I wish I'd stayed in a working student program for like four or five years because I would have saved myself a lot of heartache and mistakes. Um, Mm -hmm. And it also, I realized now as hard as the work was as a working student, it was easier than being a professional because it wasn't on me. It was just work. It wasn't like I had the stress of paying the bills and all that stuff. Um, And then, but then what happened is after, you know, whatever, 15 years of working with all sorts of different people, when I I'd made a team already, but when I when David O'Connor became the Canadian, um, the coach for the Canadian team, yeah. David, after the very first trip I took with him as a, so he we went to Rio and he coached down there, and I'd worked with him before that for about a year. And after that trip, I came home and I was like, whatever, if wherever David goes as a coach and I'm riding, I believe everything he's going to tell me. Like he understood it at the same way that I wanted to understand it, which is the horses first. And the competition might not be first, but you still have to work. You've got to go for that competition. Um, He was honest. He was thorough. And he made a really big difference uh, for me at that point because, again, he kind of opened up what had become a very closed view in my riding, which was I kind of was a – I mean, I was available – to ride anything and I would ride anything and I would ride it hard and work hard if it didn't it didn't matter if it had no desire to do it I was going to fill it with desire and David was very good at making me start to understand how if you're really doing this well you're riding horses that you're not you're not having to make that happen on you 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 can't ride those and have a have a long I mean I'd already done it for 15 to 18 years but you can't have a lifetime of a career like that because a you're going to get hurt and b you're losing all of the work that you're doing those horses aren't always going to compete that well so you need to have horses that cooperate with you and so he was really good for me because he made me sort of tone down and ride more um, correctly you know
1: right and uh, so now we've talked about some of your mentors, some people who have been your mentors and influential people who have been a part of your career. What about some influential horses that you've had throughout your career?
0: Oh my God, there's so many. Like, I mean, <laughs> and it's funny, last night my daughter was down with a kid that I'm helping for the Young Riders this year in Tryon, and try on as She sent me a text with that girl's FEI page and my FEI page and she was like, have you only done 89 FEI events, but it's obviously on a, you know, it's on a time roll. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, no, but I, you know, I've done a lot <laughs> more, I don't know why it only says that, but also we do a lot more horse trials than FEI events cause it, it saves money. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about it after that and I was like, you know, there's a lot of horses cause it wasn't on one horse. It's like on a ton yeah. of horses. Um, but they're, don't feel like they've like the I don't feel like I've had the the unicorn yet you know like I see people riding Mm. horses and they go out and buy horses and they're like riding horses where I watch them around I'm like oh my god unbelievable but but at the same time I've learned so much from some of the absolute diamonds in the rough that we've had come through and have done so much for me um so the, when I was younger, my first young rider horse was that he was luckily, he was so sound that I was able to go and make so many mistakes on him. Cause I was a moron and he won a bunch <laughs> of them. I thought I was like some sort of genius. Um, but I knew nothing and he ended up suffering for it. He got an injury. And I remember when that happened, I was, cause I just didn't know, I mean, I really was ignorant to it. And I was like, Oh my God, I need to learn about this stuff because this is, so I'm pretty good at rehabbing horses now because I really attend to it and pretty good at keeping them sound as well because I recognize all the pitfalls because I usually have stepped in them. Um, so he was super, he really did give me a lot of help, um, because he was there to practice on all the time. You know, he'd be beneficial in anybody's barn at any point. He might not have been a big time winner, but by God, Mm -hmm. he was there to show up. Um,
1: And what and was this one, horse's name?
0: Uh, Winston.
1: Okay.
0: It's a long time ago. I mean, I took him to young riders. I took him to young riders at six, as I was when I was 16 years old, yeah. and he'd been one of the jumpers that hadn't quite worked out. I think I got him mm-hmm. to the intermediate level in like eight months. Like it was just, wow. he just was willing, you know? Yeah. Um, and then in the early part, I thought I had a bunch of good horses when I first came back from England. Um, I had two. I had five in the barn when I was traveling around um, the country, living in squalor because I didn't have any money. Um, But I had two that I bought first thing when I came back from England. One was called Chit Chat and the other one was Formal Affair. And they taught me a lot because they both ran advanced at like seven and eight. And they were really successful. And they were not like one was right off the track. When I went to try them, I remember jumping straw bales in the barn aisle with them to see whether he could jump because I mean I didn't know what else to do um (laughs) and he and he was awesome and he went up and both those horses got um long listed for the Canadian team as a one as a seven-year-old and one as an eight-year-old it was different time Uh, yeah but um they they taught me a lot about training because I had time to train them and at the same time, they taught me a lot about my spot, my role in this profession, because everything looked like it was going to be great with them. And I was so excited about where I was. I was accomplishing goals. I was checking off boxes. And I, I mean, when I say I was broke, I mean, I was broke. I was doing everything I could to make some money and working on farms and doing fencing and everything like that. But I had five horses to do and I was trying to sell them sell some of them and I couldn't get anything sold and basically someone walked in the barn and um offered me money for the one I liked the most which was chit chat um mm. and it was a I mean it was a real gut punch but I'd spent the year
1: yeah.
0: starving literally like eating once a day and trying to get by waiting for this thing to change where all of a sudden I wasn't desperate anymore um, mm-hmm. and I just I couldn't turn it down so I sold him. So then, and then I ended up having to sell the other horse too, because the one thing is you sell one money goes into the business and then it disappears and you gotta, you gotta keep going. Yeah. So I did a lot of that for a really long time. And then um, I had a really nice horse come in the barn that we bought. I had an owner, but I finally had a good owner up in Canada named Elaine Davies. And they were very, they were really instrumental for me to get into a different stage of my riding career Um, mostly because they made me, she sort of made me realize that, you know, people don't, like, I was still working with this idea that if I had an owner that we were working on, how do I make the owner money, which I'd done for a long time. Um, And she sort of made me realize that some people just want to support the sport and they love the horses and they want to just help you along. And I'll be honest with you. I was with her for nine years and it probably didn't occur to me until the last year that, this person actually just wanted to help me. Um, And it was hard because I couldn't, because I didn't see that. I like, I I constantly was like, well, so what do they want out of this? Why are they doing this? So I was constantly selling horses again and that type of stuff. And um, we had one come in, we bought a really nice thoroughbred that had had, he was a pretty bad show jumper, but I'm arrogant. I thought I could fix it. And then he was, (laughs) um, but he was a beautiful mover like this horse. You know, people say the the thoroughbreds don't have a trot. I'm telling you, this—he just had an incredible front end and back end. He was really a beautiful horse and real sharp and sensitive, which I like. And we got him, and I started to compete him. And I mean, I think I was in the bottom six at every event after dressage all spring that year. It was so—it was—it wasn't embarrassing because he was a really nice horse. But I—and I knew I was trying to figure him out. But like, it was some people, some owners would have been like, what the hell we just bought this. What was wrong with you? And he wasn't, it wasn't like he was terrible before, but he wasn't brilliant. He's up against like some serious competitors. And about two weeks before Kentucky I'd ridden at Kentucky, like at the, at the Rolex, probably Mm -hmm. 13, 14 times by that point. And that horse again, no, I just riding horses. Um, The week, two weeks before Kentucky went and he did a really good ride. I had a really good run at him at North Georgia, but I didn't get the dressage yet. And then the week after it just came together. I figured out what was what was missing, basically. And I remember talking to a friend of mine as I was driving to Kentucky and I was like, I'm coming. I'm going to I'm going to win this. And he was like, maybe just settle down a little bit there, champ, you know, because, I mean, that, and I was like, no. And he's like, well, all you got to do is qualify for the Pan Ams. That's the goal. And I was like, no, I'm going to win this. I'm going to try to win this because I have a I have a real opportunity here on this horse. And damned if he didn't end up second there that year. He led, led Dressage, or was second after Dressage, led after Cross Country, the show jumping, he had he had the last rail down he had a couple rails but he had the last one rail down and lost first because of that That but he wasn't good I mean he wasn't a good show jumper and he did a good job through the whole weekend um so that horse kind of opened my eyes up to I I remember saying to my to my father um after cross country because my dad had been there all through this stuff I remember saying to him I was like wow. So that's why everybody has so much fun with this because it's actually supposed to be easy. Cause the horse just wanted to do it. You know, it wasn't like I was having to wrestle an alligator around the course. Um, and so he kind of opened me up to this idea of, you know, quality is a lot easier to, to deal with. Not that I was able to then immediately choose that type of scenario, but, um, mm-hmm. and then we had a mare that, that my father and I bred, uh, that was a nice little horse, it was, but she was like fifteen three. She didn't look like a lot when she was younger. I'd ridden her father intermediate, um, and so we had this homebred. And we thought, you know, like I mean, honestly, I, w- once she was sort of three or four, I was like, well, the writing's on the wall. This is not going to be good, good enough. So I got her out. We got her out, and I started competing her a little bit. And Jen, my wife. Um, we were married at that point i think she was probably five or six the horse not jen and um <laughs> they um i wrote her training and then the owner of the of the farm actually bought her off of my father and i and um i was like look she was like 50 small i was like she's certainly going to suit jen more and jen took her and did um the five star in kentucky on her twice but we had her for sale for a while as a training level horse and nobody like people would look at her one person sat on her. everybody's like oh she's not good enough she doesn't she's not she's not gonna have the scope she's not gonna have the size she's not gonna like they, all they could tell me is how she wasn't going to and yeah. so Jen ran her prelim and I was like I think there's more to this than than what people are seeing and it kind of got a little bit up my nose as well and Jen got on with her really well and they went on and they had a great they had an unbelievable career because, um, you know, the mayor got the opportunity and the training and the, mm-hmm. and a rider who was sympathetic to what, to, sympathetic to what she needed. And it's it, it, that showed me a lot of of what I think what I used to think about stuff. But you never, you know, to, unless you get to keep them and finish them off. And go all the way up the levels. You don't really know if you're if you're accurate or not. So it was a really eye opening experience for me. Jen did the five star well before I did um, because the opportunity was there, and Jen was a partner with that horse. I mean, and when it didn't go well, mm-hmm. it wasn't like Jen was like, "Oh, that bloody horse." She just took it as, "I need to do this better," and took the responsibility. Right. Because of that, the horse really drew, like. we got pictures of her around here jumping huge fences there and she was like a sausage you know so it was like (laughs) it was pretty cool and then we bred her and have foals by her that have done pretty well um some better than others um but you know like seeing a horse through a lifetime is a lot different than seeing a horse for a year and a half and I'd seen a lot of year and a half horses and not a lot of lifetime horses and um I think on, on that note, that horse was very instrumental in changing some things for me too. There, look, there's a bunch of horses there that in that, in that whole time period that were showing up and going to the you know, top level with me and stuff. But again, they weren't top horses and they were yeah. never staying. I never kept anything after uh, older than 10 years old because I couldn't afford to, they were all had to be sold. Well, the best years on a horse are really 10 to 15. So you can just Mm -hmm. imagine you're doing all the work and then you're just, and everybody knew it. They would see me on a horse. If they liked it, they'd be like, Oh, what does that have to be to sell it? And it's a bit depressing, but you know, we ended up on a farm because of it. We ended up having careers because of it. So trading your hopes and dreams for someone else's money became sort of the norm. Um, and then, through that like I've had I think I counted up I've done 29 advanced horses I've probably done 75 intermediate horses and there has to be probably 250 to 300 prelim horses have wow. come through my barn like it's just the numbers were huge <laughs> yes. all through my riding but um Madison Park who I went to the Pan Am's I'd already been to one Pan Am, so I went to the Pan Am's and he got uh, he got a silver medal there on the team. And then he mm-hmm. went to the Olympics. And then he got a silver medal at the Worlds in Kentucky. Um, Obviously, that horse, he changed my life in a lot of ways. He's still here. Jen rides him. He's 24 years old. He'll probably come out and compete this fall. He doesn't like the heat, so we don't make him do anything too strenuous <laughs> in the summer. Um, but he he just showed me how a good horse and I, it's funny. He never got the, he never got what I was hoping he would get as far as like, I think he could have potentially been an individual metal horse. He had been to the racetrack and in the big, big environment, he would, he just had no security or confidence. He loses, lose himself in the dressage, usually at the walk, because of course when he was active, he was good, but at the walk, he just would, uh, he just created, you know, those like demons would come out. Mm. Um, but with that, he was still terribly successful. And Jen's the reason he came into the barn. I tried him. I didn't like him at all. And I remember the conversation. I was like, are you kidding me? This isn't what we want. And, and we had an <laughs> owner that wanted to buy a horse and it, the owner bit was a, was a bit of a, mean, uh, he, he was a bit difficult. And I was like, I don't need, you know, this is just, this is kind of pointless, but uh, there was another horse I really liked that wouldn't pass a vetting. And Jen was like, this, I think he's got something. I'm like, there's so many reasons. I do think this is a terrible idea. There was, you couldn't, he jumped left every time he left the ground. He was he was hollow. He jumped upside down when he jumped, he had lots of power. He had a great canter. He couldn't get above a 50% in dressage with the rider that had him. Like he was a nightmare because he was, because he's just like a kid in a car seat. He's like full of himself,
2: which is also <laughs> what
0: made him great. But, I mean, she couldn't have been more right. I had a lot of time to work with him, which made a huge difference on him mm-hmm. and um, and on me because it allowed me to, I mean, basically training him was like training five horses. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I turned, someone tried to buy him as a 10-year-old, and it's the first horse I've ever turned down a sale on. And it was because yeah. I really, no, maybe it was, yeah, no, it was as a, sorry, it was as an eight-year-old. And I was like, I just, I think this, I think now, and I love riding them and I love horses and I love my horses. And that's the problem is knowing that you have to, you know, it's like having, you know, pick your dog, find your favorite dog and be like, I love my dog. I love my dog. And now you have to sell it to survive. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. I
1: know. It's so hard to let them go.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, it's not realistic for us to be able to just sort of hang on to them, but when I turned the offer down on him, and it was it was life changing money, I was like, I my goals are about to be met. Like I really think that's going to happen. Of course, at the time, like you're an idiot. This isn't how it goes. You turn down the money and things go wrong. And of course, he went on. He did like nine five stars. He was, you know, made three teams, medaled at two of them he competed at the advanced level till he, for 11 years until he was like 18 and he'd still have done it until he was 20. But I just, mm. I'd gotten where I was so worried about him getting hurt. I, I mean, yeah. it was just impossible for me to see carrying on. Um, so I handed him over to Jen to compete at the, she did, I think she's done prelim on him training on him because she loves him. He's a family horse. Everybody in the farm loves him. um, and it was just such a great it was a, it was like a reward for him to just kind of keep going, being able to do something and be, you know, like I, I, I promise you in all the years that we got him as a seven year old. He's still if you show up at an event, there wasn't a single day in his whole career that cross country day, he didn't show up and go, yeah, this is a great idea. And there's no possibility that in all those runs that he's done, that there was, that there were days he didn't kind of feel a little under the weather or whatever, and it right. didn't matter, because that's what a truly great horse does, is you go to that ring, you know, you go to that jump, you go out on cross country, and things aren't good, they throw a shoe, they're stuck in the mud, they're up on hard ground, whatever, and they go let's do this this is awesome like your job on him is to tell him no let's chill out because he's that into it so um the time to be able to train a horse makes uh, just it makes such a difference and it's such a privilege and unfortunately that's something that we don't i don't get a lot of and that it's I struggle with it because it's actually the thing that often it makes me want st- to the thing that would make me want to step away from this Job and lifestyle is a couple of things is people that won't do what they say. The stress mm-hmm. of the trying to get the finances and then not actually getting to finish the job on a horse. You know, like when I lose rides on horses, I've lost ai mean, I've had good horses that other people ended up with that I wasn't on my decision or, you know, even if it was on my decision, it's heart wrenching. And it gets to be a bit like, you know, it'd be nice to think that wasn't how it was, but at the same time I've had so many horses that just filled my heart, my ready or not mare that I ride right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, my God, she's unbelievable and she's such a sweetheart and she's so easygoing. And, you know, her backstory is, is pretty phenomenal with, You know, her breeder, loved her, chose that one as the one to go on up the levels, died in a car crash at an event that I was at with her, and we've kept her going in her memory, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with a few supporters, but even that, like, and, and just having her around is just, I mean, it's unbelievable, and then the group of horses that are in the barn right now, it's like, I go to ride those ones that I know are mine, and... That's how it feels. It's like it's mine. It's not like possession. It's like mine. Like that is my wife. This is my horse. Yeah. This is my relationship. Relationship. Yep. It's the thing that keeps me in this because when that ends, I mean, there's nothing to it, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I totally understand. Um. And moving forward a little bit, I'd like to get into your training. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your training philosophy
0: um do the right thing by the horse no yeah. ribbon no ribbon is worth well maybe there is a ribbon worth it but i don't i haven't found one yet no ribbon is worth your horse i mean there's just not the end of the day the things that keep me up at night are several but but if a horse is compromised and i and it and it was I mean it happens. We're in competition. We're in we're in horses. Horses get hurt. They're all going to die before we do. That sort of thing. They're going to la- mm-hmm. go lame. But if you can if you fill your knowledge and and know enough to avoid those things, then you have to commit yourself to it. And and I think knowledge is the key to all of it. And it's not utilized enough in our, in our sport. I think people are so fascinated by the ribbon that they think that that means something. Well, I mean, I got lots of ribbons that don't do much for me, but I'll tell you what, that horse, when I go out there and I get on it to ride it at home or at a show and it gives me its heart. I mean, that's what, it's just so worth it then. I mean, it sounds a bit stupid, I know, but and that would be a downside of, I'll say that's probably a, bit, a little bit of downside of me and competition is it takes a it takes something pretty important to make for, for me to kind of be like, all right, all cards on the table, we're going, there's no tomorrow. Um, I tend to ride as though I'm going to have, that I need to make sure I can ilk five more years out of it. So, um, and that's for me training in, in horses and then training people. People come in to ride with us. Um, for Ride with Jen and myself because they want the successes of other students that we've coached because we've had, I mean, we've had medalists, all three young riders at every level and um, for years, like multiples. And then I've got students that have ended up on teams and gone to Pan Ams and I've coached just a ton of kids that won ACs and championships and things like that. And they come in with that, thinking that's what they're coming in for. And for me, it's they're not. They're coming in so that I can teach them how to circumvent problems, how to work with the horse in a better way, that sort of thing. Like, you know, trying to change them and impact their life so that they do the right things by the horse, by their parents, by themselves, all that stuff. And it gets tiresome at some point i mean that will be a that will drag it right out of you but it is so much about the knowledge that you have to go and put that you have to really work on putting that as the biggest priority like we we started an app last year with a couple of former students of ours um, called ride iq and it is all about it's got you know it's it's coaching over um audio it's it's riding um it's information because we have multiple things on there and that was when we started i'm like i want people to understand about what a foot should look like i want people to understand this stuff that matters to your end goal because if you don't know these things your potential olympic horse is going to sit on the sidelines so mm. we want or not even potential olympic horse but just your partner if your partner yes. gets hurt because you didn't know the bungee cord um, cross ties when they pull back will sometimes snap and take their eye out. Like if you see that, that's knowledge you've got to share. So all that stuff we're trying to put out there and not just us, but like all we've got like 30 coaches on there. I think again, because I want the knowledge to go there and it does make it one step easier because I don't have to then deal with the, you know, personality that might be contrary to what I what I want to deal with you know
1: and to continue on this topic of teaching um when you are teaching students actually and when you're writing and training yourself too is there any type of favorite exercise or type of work that you have in your repertoire that you find is really important
0: I there's a bunch so it's funny because This is a little bit like when I go to clinics and stuff, we'll go do the cross country stuff. And I'm like, oh, that horse, I could use this exercise for like there's so because I've done so many horses and most Mm -hmm. of them wouldn't have been chosen horses. They came in with a problem. I had to find some way around it. So there's, you know, like everybody has, say, one way to introduce a horse to water or a ditch or whatever, And I'm sure they're good. And if you've trained 10 horses, you probably have 10, you know, 10 things, but you're probably relying on one or two of the same thing. And we don't have that here. So, but, but what we do have here is a ton of jumps in like a ton of different terrain and things to help train them. And one of the best ones for us is I've got, um, a mound that's down by one of my, by some cross country jumps I have. It's a, it's on a, beside my steps and I put a vertical on it and I I mean it's the distance across the top and it's the ramp on either side make all the difference but you can teach a horse to put a powerful six foot stride with this exercise without having rails that are you know inhibiting the horse's natural ability to do it um and they will jump big fences off a six foot stride and they'll choose to do it and the riders can just sit with a balance it like it's one of the ones that I go to with a lot of horses because it is way more effective than doing canter rails or nine foot rails and all that stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. And that would
0: be one other thing I, I think in the jumping. Um, I see a lot of you know, people love the nine foot rail. And I actually am not a big nine foot rail fan because to me, the problem is not how deep you get the horse to the fence, which the nine foot rail puts them on a placement. But what is the last stride like? So, if I put the rail out at 18 feet, 19 feet, I can get them to go over rail and coil to jump over the fence because it'll teach them how to canter better to get that deeper distance. Whereas with the nine right. foot rail, you see people come in and the horse kind of takes a lunge at the nine foot rail. Well, yeah, okay, so the horse is closer, but his canter's crap now. And that's not what you're trying to teach them. So, I tend to go about things a little differently sometimes. The same within the warm up for show jumping. I'll do a lot of horses where I'll roll the ground rail way out rather than underneath it. Like I see people roll it underneath and they'll be like, Mm -hmm. well, I want them to get deep so that they, you know, can, can bump the rail. And Mm -hmm. the problem is, is the horses don't necessarily again, get that deep. What they do is they just get flatter. But if I roll the rail out, I can get them, as deep but what it does it brings them off the ground better and you get a much rounder better shape so i'm usually out there rolling the rail out everybody else is rolling the rail in but partly that happens because a lot of them are riding careful horses and they want the horse to bump the rail so that when it goes in the ring it's already kind of sharp but i don't end up with a lot of like i've got a couple real good ones right now that are really careful but i don't need to bump them because they're careful already But if I'm riding one that's not that careful, I don't want it to bump into the rail because they don't necessarily improve with it. What I want them to do is get a better shape. And that's my whole thing is I'm always trying to get a better shape on them, trying to get them to be, you know, let's say more correct. Um, And I'm not if I was better at my job, I would be doing that and winning huge classes and everything. But
1: I'm
0: (laughs) I'm I'm good at my job and I'm very good at dealing with deficits.
1: Actually, speaking of um, deficits, it kind of goes into my next question. When you are training students, do you ever find that there's a certain thing that a lot of your students struggle with, like a deficit maybe, that you like to work on a lot?
0: Yes. They need to have better senses of humor. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I think everybody comes with their own thing and it's stages. I think the young writers tend to be, tend to be really aggressive, a little bit irresponsible and a bit oblivious. And because of that, their parents are like, Oh my God, they're so brave. But not knowing what's going on is not bravery. Not knowing what's going on is um, naive. And once you start to know what's going on, then it's bravery. So with those, so there's sort of three state, three different types, and usually the young riders are a little bit that way. There are adult, older riders are that way too, but the younger riders tend to be a bit that way. And so your job is to teach them technique, teach them to ride better, um, teach them to be more patient, and then from that, watch that you don't degrade their um, their bravery. So what will often happen is you'll take them, you'll start teaching them those techniques and things, and then the next thing you know is they're overly burdened with what you've taught them, and all they can think of is the stuff in front of them, and they start to lose their flow, which they had before and is something that you want to nurture, um, so then you end up end up having the opposite where you end up you teach them to wait to add, and all of a sudden all they do is add, and then you're like, okay, well now we got to work on the opposite end of it. Um, finding yeah. the middle is difficult for most everybody. Some okay. of the exceptional kids I've taught, they don't have trouble with them, they don't have trouble finding the middle, but they're ex- the exceptional ones are maybe ten percent, you know. And I'll tell you what, if they're if you're the, if they're the ten percent. It doesn't pretty much matter who they work with, as long as the person they're working with gives them good information as how to train a horse. They're going to succeed. They don't need to learn the process that well because they end up they're almost installed with it. Yeah. Um, and then the but the one big thing that I see all the time that I always am working on, and rarely am I am I um, shocked with someone actually by by someone doing it it's usually the opposite is uh people cutting in like being impatient to get to the jump off a turn instead of Mm. so when you jump one fence and i we were just working on it earlier with a group of kids that are riding with me and they're good riders like i promise you they're really good riders (laughs) um but they jump in and so there's a vertical turning left to an oxer and then On the other end, there's a vertical turning right to the same oxer so that you work both sides. And they will jump in, and everybody gets impatient and cuts in on the line, and then you lose the canter, you lose the distance, and all of that. So, teaching people to be patient is the first thing I find that you have to do to actually make them competent. And that's not like, and that's in the turns usually. Then, teaching them to be um, teaching them to be patient when they're competing and things are getting, you know, everybody's adrenaline's going and all of a sudden they're, you know, they're, yeah. what makes a great rider? What makes a great round? When you watch the top riders ride, all those different horses go about the same. They're pretty relaxed with their job. They stay out on a line. They go in on a line. They make decisions based upon, um uh, upon in you know information that they're they're processing and yeah, if you just
1: what they have in, in that moment
0: yeah and if you just jump and cut in uh, then you're gonna get you're gonna struggle with this I mean you're gonna struggle with it because every course designer is going to own you and they every course has those questions <laughs> yeah. on it both in show jumping in on cross country uh-huh. and here's what really frustrates me with that is like, I've got people that I can get them to do it at home. And I go to a show. I had one this spring do it. And I'm like, they just cut in, like, way early, like 10 feet early. And I'm like, don't, like, how can you possibly get out of that situation? And she wasn't able to. But it just, like, it's the thing we've worked on for three years. That's a mental game you need to own. I cannot fix that for you. Yeah. But the interesting thing to me with it is those same people rarely do it in dressage because they know in dressage, they're going to lose a mark if they do it. Like if they cut the circle or, you know, try to get back to the wall too quickly, there comes yeah. a point where they start to get there and start to, um, start to understand that they're the event. If they cut in, they're going to lose that mark. As soon as they're in that situation, they, they reform themselves because they don't want to lose that mark. But, they're losing far more than a mark when they do it in the in the ring to jumps or yeah. cross country to jumps, and it is amazing because you see it all the time. And again, when those people are going out, uh, as they de- as someone develops, the older riders that are experienced in the right way, or some of the younger riders as well, um, they will they'll be able to hold that together, you know. Yeah,
1: Um and then. I have a question for you about competitions too because I'd like to get a sense of what it's like when you are out there competing yourself. So, um we talked about adrenaline a little bit especially with your students. So, but you know, everyone deals with adrenaline when they're when they're at shows and some people get nervous, some people in a good way, some people in a bad way. So, um when you are competing, do you get nervous and if you do, how do you handle your nerves?
0: Yeah, I mean I- for me, it's very much horse specific. Um, probably as I've gotten older, it might be a little more, I'm far more aware. And so I will, you know, when I'm laying there the night before I'm, you know, twitchy, um, usually the, usually the night before a competition, I sleep pretty well because I start to go over the course of my mind and visualize it. I'm a big visualizer Mm -hmm. when it's going well. Um, and, I'll fall asleep by fence ten. Like I rarely get past fence ten. But that doesn't mean <laughs> I'll still wake up in the morning and be like, and I get you know, you get that hor that horrible and that great, like all of a sudden you're like you think about it and all of a sudden the adrenaline shoots through your system. And um but as far as nerves, like it, it is it depends on what's what's riding on it. I find I, I'm far more comfortable at a big competition with a horse that I have produced to do that stuff with um, because I feel like I'm going out to show the ownership I have in our relationship.
1: Right. Um,
0: but I like, if I catch ride horse, I don't catch ride much anymore. I used to catch ride a ton. And the reason I stopped is it's like, you know, if I get on, if I'm talking to you right now in English and you switch to Spanish, I don't speak Spanish. We're in trouble. And that's exactly what I feel like now when I'm catch riding horses is that the two of us are on different wavelengths Uh because the conversation is different. So then I get nervous. I still have to do it sometimes and ride people's horses. But if I, depends on my relationship and what the horse is. um, I always felt very confident with uh, Madison Park when I would ride him cross country because he was a partner who wanted Mm -hmm. to do it. And by the time I got him up the levels, he was really, really broke. You could do anything with him. That's for me, that's the trick is I need to be able to enact change on them and do anything with them. If I can do that, my nerves are very, very low. Um, And then at the bigger events for me, I'm usually there with fewer people, fewer horses, and I actually get to focus. And, right. oh, my God, it's such a privilege because running around these events that we go to where we've got 23 students. Now, Jen does a lot of the the work at the shows that way, and I end up riding. But, like, when you're doing six to I don't do them anymore. I, I probably seven's the most I'll do now. But when you were when I was doing nine, even seven, you're just getting on one horse, on yeah. the other horse, and mm-hmm. it, it doesn't. It makes me a little bit like you know, it's not. I don't know if it's nerves, but it like it ruins the experience for sure.
1: Right, you don't get uh, to uh, take everything in the way you yeah, would with less.
0: But like Madison Park in dressage, I mean, at world champion at the world championships, he was so good on the flat, like in his warm ups and everything um like he looked like he could do dressage, and he could he could he can really do dressage but he couldn't do it in a big arena that day of waiting till I was the last rider so I was the anchor rider and I uh, went right yeah. after Michael Young I mean I was <laughs> I was as nauseous for that as I've ever been for any cross-country round I mean it was horrible the next day for cross-country I was like all good not because I think everything yeah. work out, but because at least I have ownership in that one. I know the two of us are on uh-huh. the same page, you know. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so I think it's very horse-specific, and mm-hmm. then it's very like, like I'm going to, I'm taking one to the three-star at um, uh, uh, Maryland this year, and he's not. I was quite just going to ask you way,
1: about that. Okay. Yeah, he's
0: not quite all the way there yet. Like it's coming. Like he's done really well. He's a very good horse, but as in our relationship, we're not all the way there yet. But I am telling you, I am so excited about riding that horse there. It like gives me shivers because I'm just like, mm. it's, it's that budding relationship where you're like, this could be great. And I, yeah. and I cannot wait until next year with them. And that, I mean, that is, it'll be nerves, but it'll be different nerves, you know, yeah. you're worried about the rail and show jumping, but let's, but with this horse, I feel like that's going to be an anomaly, not a, not a norm, you know?
1: Right. It's, it'll be it'll be fun it's fun it's good nerves it's, good nerves
0: good nerves exactly yeah i will say probably show jumping is the worst for me because i, I mean you, you have a rail and you're just like I, I mean it's gut-wrenching you know and then the other thing is and this isn't it's probably you know there are people that are just gifted in there i have to work at everything a little bit more i'm not natural with with the with a lot of the stuff we do i'm very natural in my relationship with horses is very easy for me so I have a major advantage there but as far as like having the position I have to ride and work all the time because I don't I don't hold it you know I've got friends that get on a horse I can get on any horse but if I'm not riding I can't get on any horse and do well you know I need to Mm -hmm. I need to be like fit in the right way just the way it is my wife sits on a horse she's always balanced I'm like (laughs) Humpty Dumpty
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I actually, I was just going to ask you about that. I will be at the Maryland, uh, I assume you mean the Maryland five-star?
0: Yeah, no, yeah, I'm yeah. not doing the five-star. I'm doing the three.
1: Okay, yeah. and what's that horse's name? I'll have to look out for you guys.
0: Oh, my God. Uh, G-star, Von Klinkenberg. So <laughs> it's
1: like,
0: it, I think there's even more to it than that. He's got the worst name yeah. in the world. His name's Gus. But, I, but he is, like, he's really sweet. He's a really nice horse. He fits me and I've got good horses in that barn, but like, he's like a glove. Like I feel part Mm -hmm. of him and we've, I've had him for just about a year. He was a student of mine's horse and he was kind of, it was just failing. And like, I, I've never been, I've never been afraid to get on one that I thought that I thought was good enough that just wasn't going right. I'm always like, I kind of always a little bit arrogantly believe I can get there but right. it's really happening like it's so mm-hmm. it's just it's really exciting if I could it's ride a great yeah, feeling yeah I mean I, I just I, if my parents just have been wealthier I and mean, that's what I blame everything on yeah, I would have, <laughs> I'd have five horses like this in the barn and then I'd think I was brilliant but fortunately for me I'll have a few in the barn that aren't so good and that'll keep me well grounded <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> well I'll have to uh, come say hi at the Maryland five-star I can meet you in person then
0: yeah, no, absolutely. I'll be up there doing that, and then I'm doing a course walk for uh, Ride IQ and Eventing Nation. I'm oh, gonna awesome. walk the walk in the five star there because I do want it Kentucky every year for Perina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I mean we I've been with Perina for uh, God, I don't know, like over 20. I think about 25 years.
1: Wow. Um, yeah.
0: And sponsored by them for probably eighteen. And now it's actually funny because now I do a lot of broadcasting for them and stuff, and I really enjoy it. and it's just this natural progression, um, and I do interviews and things like that. So just, you know, like i'm I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of the sport, but I'm mm-hmm. honestly, I'm a huge fan of the horse. I couldn't, yeah, like I would be happy train if someone said you know what kyle i want you to ride my five horses or eight horses or whatever and you're gonna ride them i'm gonna compete them um this is your job and then you can help me out or whatever i would jump on that job and be happy as hell take away all the responsibility of trying to take care of you know manage everything as a professional Mm -hmm. let me ride some horses i'm in
1: yeah Awesome. Well, that's all I have for you, but, um, I really appreciate you again, getting on and chatting with me and, uh, I guess I'll see you in about a month from now.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Kyle Carter and a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode Purina. Learn more at purinamills.com. You can subscribe to the Practical Horseman podcast on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Also, tune into our mini series, The FOD Pod, which is released every other Sunday. You'll hear audio lessons from our favorite Practical Horseman On Demand clips. At Practical Horseman On Demand, you can enjoy hundreds of how-to videos and get insider access to exclusive interviews and lectures, slow motion demonstrations, and step-by-step tutorials taught by top-level pros in the hunter, jumper, equitation, and eventing disciplines. When you tune into the FOD Pod, listen closely for a promo code for 15% off your Practical Horseman On Demand subscription. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. I'm Julia Riffey, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast.
0: Yeah, awesome. We'll see you up there.
1: Well, thanks so much, Kyle.
0: Thank you.